The church is always challenged with remaining faithful to Christ. That's been true from the beginning of the church. It's going to be true until the Lord returns. You can see it every New Testament letter that we find is addressing some kind of challenge within the church to remain faithful to the Lord. And we all know that the natural bent of our heart is not to move toward the Lord naturally. We naturally move away from the Lord. So it is a constant challenge for us to remain faithful to the Lord, concern for the church's love for Christ and encouragement within suffering and doctrinal commitment, spiritual vibrancy, perseverance amidst opposition, the authenticity of fellowship with God and each other are constant challenges to us. My bookshelves are full of volumes that tell us what the church should do to remain faithful to the Lord. The blogosphere has all the perfect answers, doesn't it? Addressing all of the concerns of the church and pointing them all out and giving the perfect answers for what we must do to remain faithful to the Lord. We know the potential corruption within the church, the constant opposition outside the church. All of that that happens can leave us feeling somewhat discouraged perhaps, maybe hopeless individually. Even as a congregation, we could feel somewhat hopeless in the midst of what goes on in our world. You have to ask yourself often, what is it that is going to be most helpful to encourage us when we need it and correct us when we need, that, need it so that we're going to remain faithful to the Lord until he returns. In our office, you can see a quote. If you come into our office, you'll see it on the wall. It is a quote from John Owen that actually provides an answer to that question. John Owen says this, quote, our recovery or revival will not be affected, nor a fresh spring of grace be obtained in a careless, slothful course of profession. Constant fighting, contending against sin with our utmost endeavor for an absolute conquest over it are required. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls to this as a constant view of Christ and his glory. That's from his book called The Glory of Christ. He goes on and he says, a steady view of the glory of Christ in his person, his grace, his office, through faith, or a constant, lively exercise of faith on him as he is revealed to us in the scripture, is the only effectual way to obtain a revival from under our spiritual decays. In other words, if the church wants to persevere, the church will persevere when our conviction about when our affection for the glory of Christ is higher and wider and deeper and broader than our personal lusts, our cultural fears, and our prideful quests. A robust vision of the glory of Christ is the only means, listen to this carefully, a robust vision of the glory of Christ is the only means to keep us steady and faithful until Christ returns. And that is exactly how Revelation begins. We know that the book is about the second coming of Christ and how we should live in light of it. We have seen elements about the nature of God that give us confidence in what is revealed here in this book about the end. But what is it that needs to be our constant, vigilant meditation that will keep us steady in the face of global stress and personal wrestling with sin? It is one thing. It is what we see in Revelation 1, a vision of the glorified Christ. Revelation 1, 9 to 20 is that vision. It's a vision of Christ's glory and that vision of Christ's glory was meant to help his church persevere in faithfulness until he comes. 
So we need to ask the question, what is it about the glory of Christ? What is it about his majesty specifically that would cause us then to consider the stresses around us and remain faithful to him and not cave to the pressures of the culture or the world or our own struggle with sin? Buckle up. I have 12 parts to talk to you about this morning. I, I just thought, you know, over the last couple of weeks, I had seven points. That's a divine number. Seven points in the next sermon. I needed to keep some divine number, so 12 is it today. 12 parts. We want to look at the anatomy of the glory of Christ, because that's what's put on display here. Christ in his glory and the different aspects, the different parts of his glory. And so that's what we'll look at, 12 parts of the anatomy of the glory of Christ that should help the church persevere until he comes. Part number one. Let's just call it simply this. Christ's authority. Christ's authority. It's in verses 9 to 11. Now, before, before I examine each of these parts of the anatomy of Christ's glory, I want to note something that you, you need to keep in mind as we walk through here. It's, it's helpful because there's a lot of ways you could describe the glory of Christ. Why does he choose these specific ones here? Why are these emphasized? Well, we're going to note that every description that we see here is actually going to be repeated when Jesus introduces himself in the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. That's significant. When Christ addresses the churches, when Christ discusses the issues of correction that they need or the words of encouragement that are most helpful for them, he begins every letter by introducing himself in accordance with his glory and his nature. To the church in Ephesus in chapter 2 verse 1, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. To Smyrna in chapter 2 verse 8, he is the first and last, the one who was dead and has come to life, which is a rehearsal of chapter 1 verse 18. To Pergamum in chapter 2 verse 12, he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword that says this to the church, referring to chapter 1 verse 16. To Thyatira in chapter 2 verse 18, he is the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. To Sardis in chapter 3 verse 1, he, has, he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, referring to chapter 1 verse 4 and verse 16. To Philadelphia in chapter 3 verse 7, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens, refers to chapter 1 verse 18. To Laodicea in chapter 3 verse 14, he is the amen, the faithful witness the beginning of the creation of God taken from the opening of the book of Revelation. In other words, when Christ addresses issues, those issues are directly related to how the church is or is not carrying out their local ministry in light of the way they view Jesus. Who Christ is addresses what we need as a church. What he has to say about what is going on in our local assembly is directly related to how we view him. And how we view him is actually played out in the way we conduct ourselves as a church. You can say that about any church. Every church does what they do, lives as they live, as an expression of what they think about Christ and his current activity among them. We tend to evaluate churches by way of comparison. You do that when you're looking for your church, you compare this to that, that church to this church, that preacher to that preacher, these people to those people. We try to look at our personal experiences, what we've felt and experienced in the past compared to what we're experiencing now from a church. We have our preferences. We have our cultural convictions. 
our reactions to society as a church, what we do, what we emphasize in our gatherings, the congregational temperament that we have as a church, and every church has one, what we express concern over, the way we express our concerns, our morality, our theology, all have to be weighed by a correct, biblically derived vision of the glory of Jesus and no other standard. Contrary to what we may think in popular opinion, Jesus does not adjust to us. He calls us to adjust to him. And the first aspect of the anatomy of his glory that we are struck with as a church is his voice of authority. Now we'll see that voice of authority throughout verses 9 through 11, and it shows itself in a number of ways. You see the voice of authority through John's own apostolic authority. It's how he begins in verse 9, I, John. I think he's emphasizing there his apostolic authority. This is actually the third time in nine verses that John has mentioned his name. And this time he's even more emphatic. He doesn't just introduce himself as John. He says, I, John. He doesn't have to declare his position as an apostle. Just his name, I, myself, John. He's very well known as the last living apostle. He is the one who shared intimate fellowship with the Lord. He is the one who actually discovered the Lord first, that he was raised from the dead. He stood at the cross when the Lord was crucified. He handled him and touched him and saw him after the resurrection. This is the one who was called by Christ to actually directly represent him. He is the elder, John the apostle. He just has to name himself, I, John. And immediately the reader says, this is a representative from the Lord. He writes here from a position of apostolic authority, meaning Christ is the one that called him to write everything that we find in this book. We'd better pay attention. This is authoritative. There's also an authority here of his partnership, an authority of partnership. He describes himself here as your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. And I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, John is writing not from some distanced position above the churches, but he's in the same boat with us. He is our brother. He is a fellow partaker. Now notice what he shares partnership in. The tribulation and kingdom and perseverance. Grammatically, these three terms are grouped together. They should be seen as expressing three different aspects of one singular partnership. He speaks of the tribulation. Likely that's the emphasis of all three terms, the tribulation, it's mentioned first. And he doesn't mean by that the tribulation that is about to come upon the whole world that he talks about in chapter 3, verse 10. He's not talking about the great tribulation that he describes in chapter 7, verse 14 that is coming. He means by this, the regular kinds of tribulation and affliction that we Christians experience because of our representing the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a partner in that kind of affliction. You remember Paul's words to the churches in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, when he was moving among the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and he told them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How are we going to get to that final kingdom that Christ brings when he returns? Through many tribulations. John is a partner in those tribulations. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. We actually will make it into the final kingdom through many different kinds of afflictions that we endure. And it's not the kind of suffering that humanity in general goes through. It's not just general sickness that everybody goes through and shares. It's not just disease and the pressures of the world that we all go through. No, this is a, an affliction, a tribulation that is tied to the kingdom. 
It's tied to the kingdom, the kingdom of God and perseverance that is found in Jesus. The kingdom, is that word is found nine times in the book of Revelation. We were made to be a kingdom. We saw that last time in chapter 1, verse 6, said again in chapter 5, verse 10. The kingdom is the future when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That's chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom is when the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, chapter 12, verse 10. It's something we live in and experience now the kingdom of God is the rule of Christ, but it's something that is yet to come in its fullness. We're still waiting for the ultimate kingdom to come, though we participate in it spiritually through the gospel. And what John is experiencing in his own life is affliction. What you're experiencing in your life because of your commitment to the kingdom is your partnership through tribulation in the kingdom that comes through salvation. And that needs to be marked by perseverance. John is a partner with us, not only in our affliction, not only in the kingdom, but in perseverance. A key theme throughout the book of Revelation, in fact, I think you could say essentially the whole book of Revelation is a call for Christians to persevere, remain faithful in the faith until the Lord comes in light of the coming of the Lord. It's a tribulation, it's a kingdom, it's a perseverance that are all in the sphere of Jesus. We're suffering in and for Jesus. It's a kingdom that's all about Jesus. It's a perseverance that is driven by our commitment to Jesus. Paul says, I'm, I'm your brother who's going through that same thing with you for the same reasons. And he notes here practically, he says, I happen to be on the island of Patmos when I received this vision. It's literally how he describes it. I happen to be here. This is the occasion of his life when he was on this little island. It's a small island in the Aegean Sea, southwest of modern Turkey, about 40 miles from the city of Miletus, 50 miles from Ephesus. It's a small island about 10 miles long as in its, at its extremities, about five miles wide, formed in a crescent shape. The horns point toward the modern part of Turkey. It was virtually treeless, barren, rocky. And many say that this was a place where Romans would send prisoners. In fact, the fourth century writer Victorinus of Petau noted, John was on the island of Patmos condemned to the mines by Caesar Domitian, where he saw the apocalypse which he published after being released on the death of the emperor. Eusebius, another third century individual, indicates that after Domitian's death, the next Caesar, Nerva, recalled all of the exiles that Domitian had sent away, which would have included John, and John then returned from Patmos and went back to Ephesus, where he spent the rest of his life. But he was sent to Patmos, Patmos, and we're told here, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Those two phrases are going to be found over and over again throughout the book of Revelation, and they refer to the, the whole and the completed testimony of God that we find in the Bible. It's the word of God, it's the word that comes from God, the message that comes from God that Jesus himself testifies to. He is the epitome of all of the word of God. And John is on this island because of that. Not because he was trying to evangelize the island, but he had been preaching Christ and they did not want him to preach anymore. So they sent him to this island known for prisoners and they sent him to hard labor. He was going through affliction because of the kingdom of God and he was persevering under it on this island. So he knows what we go through probably better than we do. Matter of fact, how many of you want to really stack up your afflictions next to what John is experiencing? Our first world problems seem to melt, don't they? But there's an authority he writes from here because of his partnership in the gospel. There's also a spiritual authority here. You see it in verse 10. I was in the spirit 
on the Lord's day. What does that mean? I was in the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that he was just a Christian. We all possess the Spirit. Romans chapters 8 and 9 tell us that we are all, if we're in Christ, in the Spirit. But he's not referring to just being in the Spirit as a Christian. He's referring to a particular prophetic state where his whole person is so captivated by the Spirit that he's elevated to see what is beyond human nature and human capacity to be able to see. And he's communicating what can only be revealed, can only be seen, and only be known by supernatural means that come from the Holy Spirit. We'll see it again in chapter 4, verse 2, when he is catapulted to heaven, and he is in the Spirit. And in chapter 17, verse 3, when he sees the vision of Babylon to come, and in chapter 21, verse 10, when he sees the new Jerusalem, he will be in the Spirit. It's similar to what... The Apostle Peter talked about when he spoke of the prophets in 1 Peter 1.12, where it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you, listen to this, by the Holy Spirit. How did the prophets preach? By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Meaning, the prophets saw things by means of the Spirit that the angels themselves could not even see. This is a prophetic state. It's similar to Ezekiel and what he experienced. You'll see it in Ezekiel's prophecy many times. Ezekiel will say, he spoke to me as the Spirit entered me. Or the Spirit lifted me up, or the Spirit entered me and made me stand on my feet and spoke with me. This is the Spirit so capturing the prophet that everything he sees and says is flowing directly from revelation that comes only from the Spirit. One New Testament scholar, Robert Thomas, described it this way. God brings a man's spirit when he's in the spirit. He brings a man's spirit into direct contact with the invisible spiritual world. And with the things in God's own mind, yet in ways accommodated to finite human perception. I mean, what would you write if you could see everything the way God sees it and try to communicate that in a way that others would understand it? I don't think this is something that you ought to be looking for. You're not likely going to be in the spirit in this way. This was marked for those who were the prophets of God who were revealing the scriptures. And we even know by the end of this book, John says you shouldn't expect any more such prophetic revelation. There's nothing more to add to this. In a sense, John is the last of the prophets when he's caught up in the spirit and he is caught up on the Lord's day. Likely that means Sunday. Throughout the Bible, the first day of the week was the day that all four gospels mention as the day that Christ was raised from the dead. And in the book of Acts, particularly Acts 20, verse 7, on the, on the first day of the week is when the churches would typically gather together. Paul would even say in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 to the church in Corinth, on the first day of the week, you should take up a collection, meaning on the Lord's day. This is the only place that Sunday is called the Lord's day. It's not the Christian Sabbath. It's not referred to as a Sabbath. The Sabbath was tied to Israel in the old covenant. This is the Lord's day that marks our identity with the Lord in his resurrection. So this is fascinating that John writes and receives this vision while he's on this little tiny place afflicted for Christ. He's caught up in the spirit. This comes from the very spirit himself and it happens on Sunday likely when he was trying to meditate on the things of God and worship in whatever capacity he could on that day. And notice how it begins. I heard behind me, verse 10, the end of it, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. We will see later in verse 15 that the voice of the Lord sounds like many waters. Why, why like a trumpet here? Well, this is very similar to something you see in the Old Testament. When in the Old Testament did God's voice sound like a trumpet? Exodus chapter 19. When Israel was gathered around Mount Sinai and Moses was about to ascend to receive the Ten Commandments and the revelation from God, it says in Exodus 19.16, 
it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Verse 19 of Exodus 19. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. In Exodus 20 verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. The trumpet sound is the sound of prophetic authority. God is about to speak. God is about to reveal new truth about himself. This is the voice of prophetic authority that commands complete attention. And this voice tells him, now write in a book what you see. So everything John is saying thus far is said by the authority of Christ's own prophetic voice of authority everything the way he reflects himself being in the spirit his partnership with us all of this is said because the voice that sounded like a trumpet revealing new revelation said John write this down which should be a reminder what John writes in the book of revelation are not his own thoughts they are what he sees He didn't just come up with this. These are not his own words. There's more dictation here in the inspiration of this book than there are in many of the other books. Write down what you see here. Now I take it, especially when he says, and send it to the seven churches, that all seven churches receive the whole book of Revelation. They received all of it. Think about that. Ephesus got not just their letter to them, they got all the other six letters to the other churches. They got to peer into what Christ was saying about those churches. Not to build them up, not to humiliate them, but you remember the seven churches were chosen not by John, they were chosen by God because these seven were representative of all the issues that God wants to address in any given age of the church. This is comprehensive of all that we need to think about. This is what Christ is addressing in churches now. And it comes from his very voice of authority. I wonder what our response would be, what church life might look like if we really thought that what we're reading in the Bible came from this authoritative prophetic voice. Again, it's natural for us to drift away from the word. It's unnatural, it takes effort and fighting to bring us back to the word and have our conscience affected by it. Every time you read it, you should read it as if the trumpet of prophetic authority from God was sounding. This is not optional for us. That's the first of 12. Let me look at the clock. Let's go to number two. Another part of Christ's anatomy that is displayed here that should give us hope and perseverance until he comes is Christ's proximity, his proximity. It's found in verses 12 through the first part of verse 13. After he hears that voice, he's told to send this to the seven churches. The churches are named in verse 11. John does what any of us would likely do. He turns to see the voice. To this point, he hasn't seen anything. He's only had the back of his head blown forward by this trumpet-like voice, so he all of a sudden stops to turn to see the voice. And the first thing that catches his attention says he saw seven golden lampstands. That's first. You remember last week, the seven spirits who were before the throne referred to the seven-branched lampstand vision that Zechariah describes in Zechariah chapter 4. This may be related to that vision, but it's a bit different. 
in Zechariah, he saw one lampstand with seven branches, all referring to the eyes of the Lord that moved to and fro through the earth. And now John turns and he sees seven different individual lampstands. Not seven seven-branched lampstands, seven lampstands with one lamp. What in the world does this mean? Well, we don't have to wonder what they refer to, do we? Look down at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are what? They represent the churches. So when John turns to see the voice, he sees seven lampstands and he's told these represent the churches that I just told you to write to. So it's a little bit different than Zechariah's prophecy. If there's any relation, perhaps it is the Spirit's work through the churches throughout the ages, but this is somewhat different. But what is to be emphasized here are not the candlesticks so much. It's the next phrase, verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Where was Christ? Not outside the lampstands peering into them. In the midst of them. In the middle of them. Even though these churches have all kinds of difficulty and some are on the verge of unorthodoxy. Some are entertaining more immorality and some are challenged with a kind of suffering that they're, they're tempted to quit the faith. He's still showing his affirmation of them because when you read of God being in the midst of his people, it is a sign of his affirmation of them. If God is on the outside of his people, it's a sign that he has rejected them. Where is Christ in all these troubled churches? In the midst of them. This is what will be emphasized to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 1. He is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Do you remember Jesus' words before he ascended to heaven? And he gives the great commission, go into all the world, make disciples, and how does he end it? And lo, I am with you always. If you want to know where Jesus is, even in troubled churches, you say, ah, I, I had to leave one church because they just had a lot of trouble. So I'm coming to your church. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> we have them too. We have troubles. If you come here, you know what you're going to find? Different troubles, but more trouble. You know why? Because we're all here. We're troubled people. We're challenged people. We live in a troubled culture. And so where is Jesus in the midst of all of his difficult churches among them? When we're tempted to wander away from the word, we should remember he's right here among us. In the way that we speak to each other, when we speak to one another, we should remember he's right here among us. When we're singing to him and to each other in our gathering, what should we think about? He's, he's among us. He's walking among us. When we're listening to the word like right now and you're accurately hearing the interpretation of the word of God, you are hearing him as he walks among us. When you think about what we should do as a church, what we are doing, what we haven't done, what the world stands against us as a church, would you just remember he's still present with us? He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. He's right here with us. The Lord is still the Lord of every one of his churches, no matter how wayward we might become. Think about this. You might love your church, but you and I will never love the church as much as he does. He gave his very life for the church. You think you could love your church more than he does? He's not abandoning the church. He's right there with us. Think about his proximity that helps you persevere in the faith. Let's look at a third part of the anatomy of Christ's glory that helps us persevere. 
Christ's humanity, his humanity. Who was it that was in the midst of the lampstands? Verse 13, I saw one like a son of man, like a son of man. We'll see that phrase here and in chapter 14, verse 14, when one like the son of man is about to reap the earth in judgment. What does that refer to? Well, the phrase son of man is a title that the gospel writers note many times that Jesus used of himself. It refers to his humanity, not really his divinity, but his humanity. He is of the nature of mankind. He has a human nature. He's the son of man. He bears the nature of humanity. So John saw someone who appeared in human form, but this is likely much more than just a reference to he saw someone who looked like a human being. In fact, John is actually saying, I saw someone that looked like the most exalted humanity. Why would we say that? Well, likely what he's referring to is what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. I mean, the phrase is almost exactly the same, isn't it? I saw one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days, which is the father, and was presented before him and to him, to the one who was like a son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. What's going to be said about Christ in Revelation chapter 5? He has all the glory, all the dominion, all the kingdom. He was given a glory and a kingdom, dominion, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Who did John see? He saw the same son of man that Daniel saw, and that's what he's telling us. I saw the same exalted son of man that Daniel saw in those visions he saw about the end. He saw the ultimate human in whose image we are all being conformed. He saw the crucified but resurrected son of man. It was this man whose voice sounded like the trumpet of Sinai the second member of the Trinity, the image of the invisible God, the one who explains God to us, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us, the one who can sympathize with our weaknesses in every respect, who was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. That's who he saw in an exalted state. So before we local church people start complaining about our human frailties and make excuses for our inabilities to remain faithful. We are to put our eyes where John had his eyes on the exalted son of man who is among us. Before we give in to temptation and rejection and fear and death, Think about Jesus. He overcame all of that in his humanity and he is now an exalted human. He is the one who is among us and he's speaking to us. He wants us to think of him in that way. His exalted humanity should encourage us to persevere. A fourth part of the anatomy of Christ's glory that helps the church persevere is found in the end of verse 13, it says that he was clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. That is, he was clothed literally in a foot-length robe. Many of the uses of this word in the Bible refer to the robes that were worn by the Levitical priests. So this could be a reference to the priestly nature of Christ and his interceding for us before the Father. It could be. But this word is also used to describe those in kingly or leadership kinds of positions. It's clothing that reflects position. In other words, this is not a robe you would wear when you're working out in the field. This is not a robe that you would wear when you're at battle. This is a robe that you would wear to describe yourself, to show yourself, to be a person of importance. 
Clothing oftentimes reflects our attitude or respect, doesn't it? You don't wear your shorts and flip-flops into the Oval Office to meet with the president. You don't typically wear them to a wedding or a funeral. I mean, I think it happens, but normally it's a little eye-catching, isn't it? Because clothing, it reveals what you think about someone or the occasion. We all know that to be true. When we make decisions as a church, I want you to think of something. We're a congregational church in the sense that our church chooses her leaders. Our church actually takes a vote on receiving members in and removing members. And I think sometimes we don't understand what we're doing. Sometimes we think we're voting on elders. We're voting on this is, do I like this guy or not like this guy? Do I like this member? Do I not like them? No, 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 no. We never vote that way. If you do, then, then you need to change the way you think. You're voting because you recognize because of who you are as a priest before the Lord, you have a unique responsibility to reflect his headship. Anytime we vote, we are saying this is what we believe best represents the authority, the position, the leadership, the prominence of the Lord. Not my, my thinking, my desire, my preference. That's not why we take votes, folks. When we have a members meeting, we're simply saying this reflects the prominence of Christ, the leadership of Christ. That's how he's reflecting himself in this robe. He's walking among the churches as if he is the head of all of these churches. And they should recognize him as that. We never look at Jesus and think casual, unconcerned. I think we need to be careful when we use phrases like Jesus doesn't care about. Be very careful with that. He cares about far more than we could ever imagine because of his position. It's his prominence. Let's look at a fifth part of the anatomy of Christ's glory that helps the church persevere. It's Christ's justice. His justice. The end of verse 13. He was girded across his chest with a golden sash. This is not likely a reference to decor. This is not an ancient tie. It's not a pocket square. It's a golden belt wrapped around his chest. So don't think of a leather belt to keep your pants up or a belt that would shore up the ancient robes so someone could run. No, this is more of a statement than it is something practical. You think heavyweight champion belt. That's what you think of here. Not golden suspenders. This is making a statement about his identity. We'll see this golden belt across the chest one other place. Revelation 15, 6. And we'll see seven angels who had seven plagues and they came out of the temple, meaning they represent heaven, they represent the sun, they're being sent on mission by the sun and they are clothed in linen, clean and bright and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Which angels? The seven angels carrying the seven final ending plagues of the wrath of God. When you see Jesus walking among the churches in his robe of headship, he's girded across the chest with a belt that says, I'm bringing final judgment. He's bringing justice. He's going to pour out his justice on all of the sin an opposition that has come against him through all history. And these angels are sent by him to administrate that justice. That should comfort the church. You know that? That should comfort us. How many injustices do we see in our world that just trample over the word of God, trample over people, and treat people with such disdain. 
I mean, we, we look at the name of God blasphemed in so many ways in culture, and we keep wondering, how long, O Lord? When you think of Christ, remember him. He isn't slow about his justice. He's purposeful, and he's coming, and he will administrate it. Do you understand? No injustice in the world will ever, ever be overlooked. The Lord of justice is coming to apply it. We don't have to rebel and revolt and walk the streets with signs and placards. We trust in the Lord who will one day administrate justice. The very one who absorbed the wrath of God in our place is going to be the one that pours out God's wrath on the earth towards those who oppose him. We're reminded by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, we're not to take our own vengeance. When you are poorly treated, sinfully treated, unjustly treated, how are we to respond? Not to take out your own injustice or justice for injustice done to you. What are you to do? You're to give them a cup of cold water. You're to, to serve those who persecute you. Why? Because it builds up the coals of God's fury that will be meted out by him when he comes. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's what you see in the golden sash around his chest. A sixth part of the anatomy of Christ's glory that helps the church persevere is found in verse 14. It's Christ's eternality, his eternality. Notice verse 14, his head and his hair were white like white wool. What does that mean? He's old. Look at all the white hair around the room. Why are you looking at me that way? Why would he describe it this way? Well, again, Just like when he said, this is the son of man. I saw someone like the son of man. It referred to, I saw the one that Daniel saw. This also goes back to the book of Daniel as well in Daniel chapter seven. And just before that vision of the son of man, Daniel saw something else. He saw a vision of one who was called the ancient of days. In verse nine of Daniel seven, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture, listen to this, his vesture was white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. It's the same kind of image, isn't it, that we see in Revelation 1. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Who is this? This is God the Father. It's the one to whom the Son of Man was presented. But interestingly, back in Revelation 1, Jesus is described as possessing the same nature, eternal nature, ancient nature, as God the Father. Not that they are the same person, but they are of the same eternal nature. Jesus is one in nature with the ancient of days. The white hair is not referring to purity, though white can refer to purity at times in the scripture. It's referring to longevity. It's referring to how old he is. Pure white hair, meaning he has no beginning and no ending. He's eternal in his nature. He shares the divine nature with God the Father. It's what we'll see over and over If you want to know what the Father looks like, you look to the Son. He shows us. This also is a reminder, if he's eternal, I want you to think about this. What he says in the word, what he says in the truth is not generational, is it? It doesn't change. His truth, his nature transcends time. We don't don't treat the words of Christ and his apostles We don't treat the expectations of the Lord as if they change from generation to generation. His nature toward us is not going to change. His love toward his people is not going to change. His promises that he's revealed to us will not change. He's not going to fade. His power is not going to grow dim. 
He doesn't get weak. His life is not going to end. He's eternal. He's unending. He existed before time began. He's going to exist when the earth's time finishes. When John saw this man standing there who is walking among the churches, he's referring to someone whose word, whose truth, whose nature does not ever end or change. And the church must think of that reality of who Christ is if they want to persevere. Culture does change. Pressures do look different. It's going to look different 25 years from now than it does today. I can't even imagine what morality will look like in five years. But the standards of Christ and expectations are eternal. They don't change. And we do well to keep that in mind. A seventh part of the anatomy of Christ's glory that helps us persevere is found in the next part of verse 14. It is Christ's knowledge. His knowledge. Notice it says his eyes were like a flame of fire. We're going to see these eyes two more times in the book of Revelation. They'll show up when he addresses the church in Thyatira in chapter 2 verse 18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire says this. We'll see it also when Jesus returns in Revelation 19, 12. He says there, his eyes are a flame of fire. What's interesting is when he addresses Thyatira, this is the church that Jezebel joined. Jezebel, the false prophetess. The one who represented herself as truth and the church embraced as cultural truth Jesus eyes of fire burn away all of the all of the error on the top side of that falsehood and pierces down into seeing what's really there when Jesus returns in Revelation 19 He sees past all the surface of the nations of the earth and his eyes burn down to see the very heart issues of a person. Did we not see that reflected in the Lord's own life when he walked among us as recorded in the gospels? He knew what people were thinking even though they tried to represent something else on the outside. Do you know what the church needs to keep in mind? You and I can hide a lot of things from the rest of the people in this room. In fact, you probably do. There are likely things going on in your life no one has any idea about except those eyes that are like fire that walks among the churches. He sees everything. You tell yourself something different about yourself all the time, but he sees what's really there. He knows what's going on. We can say about our church collectively, we believe this, we love the Lord, we trust in him, but he knows our collective temperament and the reality of it. Nothing escapes. It's a piercing, burning away of whatever facade exists. He knows. Not just our actions, our motivations. He knows everything. In fact, over and over in chapter 2, verse 2, 2, 9, 2, 13, 2, 19, 3, 1, 3, 8, 3, 15. You know what he's going to say to the churches? I know your deeds. He has eyes like fire. An eighth part of the anatomy of Christ's glory that helps us persevere is found in verse 15. It is his purity. His purity, verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. The term for burnished bronze here is used only here in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere else in any other kind of literature outside the New Testament either. It's a, it refers to a, a kind of bronze that has been heated to a fiery glow. Why would you do that? To cause the impurities to be lifted up to the surface so they can be removed to burn away all of the filth that could accumulate. Think about this. Where is Jesus as he's described here? 
He's in the midst of the churches. What is he doing in the midst of the churches? He's walking among the churches. And he is never stained by our sinfulness. His feet are burnished bronze as if glowing in a furnace. No impurities affect him as he walks among us. He leaves purity behind him. In fact, this this phrase, when it has been made to glow, will be found in Revelation 3.18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. That's the idea behind his, his feet are refined by fire. No impurities exist. He's brilliantly pure. He's unstained, unstainable from our own worldliness that we bring to the table. I think that's a wonderful thing to keep in mind. I, I mean, we can all point out the worldliness of the church today. We see it. We could see it in ourselves and you can point the finger at others, but it easily exists among us as well. And our Lord is never tainted by it. And he brings that purity to bear among us. Look at a ninth part of the anatomy of Christ's glory we see here. It is his power, his power. The end of verse 15, we hear his voice again. And what does his voice sound like here? It was like the sound of many waters. When you hear his voice, it's what it sounds like when you hear pure power of massive, unrestrained, roaring waters. If you've never heard the roar of massive waves of water, you might not recognize this. I can remember standing on the North Shore in January in Hawaii and seeing the barrel rolls of the waves that are way offshore, and yet it's still almost deafening when you hear it. Those guys that surf that stuff, there's something wrong, but that's another issue there. I mean, that is a terrifying sound. It's a, it's a powerful sound. That's what's emphasized here. The raw power of unrestrained waters When Dalton was praying just a moment ago, he was praying through Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. That's raw authority, raw power. That is God's very voice. It's powerful. Look at a tenth part of the anatomy of Christ's glory. We see in the beginning of verse 16, it's simply Christ's control, his control. Verse 16, in his right hand, he had held seven stars. Again, verse 20 is going to tell us that those seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Those are seven angels angels, not pastors. We'll get to that more when we address the churches there. They're not pastors. They're angels. If he meant a human being, he would have used that. But he uses the word angel, which he uses more than 60 times in the book. And every time it refers to a supernatural being, an angel. Angels are the ministering spirits of God. They're sent out to do his will. He holds in his right hand, which is the hand of power, The seven angels who are dispatched to give his message, he completely controls what they say, when they say, how they say, his will to the churches. It's his hand of control. He has absolute control on what the church receives as truth. He alone. I think the church should listen to that again. What we receive in the revelation of God to us comes from his own right hand and he has absolute control over what we are to believe. 
An 11th part of the anatomy of Christ's glory we find in verse 16. It's his judgment. Out of his mouth comes what? A sharp two-edged sword. Now we're, we're right to see immediately that this must be a reference to the scriptures, to the word of God. We think of something like Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between soul and spirit. You know that verse well. And we think of the, the Lord's word as a sword. But here you should think of it as an implement of judgment. This is not a word of consolation. This is not a word of concern or care. This is a two-edged sword. Guess what swords are used for? Battle. This is not the 18-inch small dagger that is described sometimes in, in scripture. This is the long, six-foot-long broadsword meant to take off people's heads. And his word is going to be that very thing that when he comes, when he comes, he has written on him, King of kings and Lord of lords, and out of his mouth to strike the nations is his own word of judgment. Do you understand that? When Christ comes, there's not another standard the world will be held to other than what you're looking at in your Bible right now. This is the standard he's going to use to mete out his punishment and judgment and every soul will be held accountable to that word and it will be that word that meets out punishment and judgment. He will reflect that again to the church in Pergamum as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword and he tells the church, I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is an implement of judgment and battle. It's how God is going to use his word in the end. Let me finish with the last part of the anatomy of Christ's glory. Number 12. It is his supremacy. Christ's supremacy. You see it at the end of verse 16? And his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. You can't look at the sun directly and be unaffected. It's supreme. The sun governs everything about our day. It's exalted above us. It captures our attention. When Jesus was transfigured before his three apostles... Peter, James, and John, it says in Matthew 17, 2, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. That's likely what this reference is to, the glorified Christ. He's so brilliant, so supreme, that any unaided human eye could not stare directly into that supremacy. It absolutely encaptures everything. It's his supremacy. How brilliant, how stunning. How supreme do we make Jesus look when we gather? When you get up tomorrow and you start your day again, do you think of him as if he was the brilliant sun shining in its strength and that is the one who is supreme over all of your life? Again, Think through this. Every consideration of Christ's glory should embolden the church to be resilient and faithful. There's nothing other than the authority, proximity, humanity, prominence, justice, eternality, knowledge, purity, power, control, judgment, and supremacy that will keep the church faithful. Nothing else other than that vision of Jesus Christ. No other vision will help you overcome your own battle with sin. That is it. You and I live out our theology. We live out our vision of Jesus every day. The more glorious your vision, the more powerful your overcoming of sin will be because you'll live in light of that in response to it 
And that is the vision every church needs to have in our minds. It governs what we do, what we experience, what we expect from a church. So if you want to evaluate a church, evaluate, evaluate what kind of vision of the glorified Christ do they possess? Are they aiming for? Are they running after? No church will pursue it perfectly. But what are they after? Now next week we'll get to the response to that vision. That's what we see next. But I want you to think, what impact should that vision of Christ have on you, where you are and what you're going through even now? Let's pray together.